Bem-vindos to the Type Theory for All podcast. As always, this is your host, Pedro Abreu, and today we will interview a quite distinguished guest, Lawrence Paulson, one of the creating fathers of Isabel. We will talk about the development process of Isabel, how he drew inspirations and ideas from LCF and Boiler Moore, what tools were used, its strengths and weaknesses, all about the historical context at the time. We also briefly talk about his formalization of Odo and completeness theorems in Isabel and many other things. Paulson have quite an extensive CV. He's a professor at Cambridge. He published more than 100 papers and is an ACM fellow since 2008. He's also a member of the Royal Society since 2017, among many other things. I'm gonna be honest with you guys, I was quite nervous to talk with him, so don't mind any eventual mistakes I make. In any case, I had to invite someone more knowledgeable than I am, so you also hear Cody as our co-host. Before we get into today's episode, if you are liking this show and would like to see it run in the future, please consider donating any amount through our platform at Ko-Fi. Simply go to our website, typetheoryforall.com, and you'll find a big, big button over there. We are also currently looking for sponsors, so if you're a company related to formal methods and like what we do, please be in touch. So, without further ado, let's get into it! Today, my co-host is going to be Cody Rue. Thank you so much for being here, Cody. Hi, thanks for having me. People liked you so much on Twitter that I had to invite you again, man. <laughs> yeah, that was... Uh, I don't know, almost embarrassing. <laughs> well, and our guest today is someone very distinguished, in my opinion. Um, thank you so much for being here with us, Lawrence Paulson. You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. So, Larry, um, we're, I, I invited you here to, to talk a little bit more about, about Isabel. We don't get, give that much attention to Isabel in this podcast yet. But before we get into that, I was looking at all the things that you've done. You've already published more than 100 papers in our field. You're, you're a member of the Royal Society. You're an ICM fellow. You've done a lot. But it doesn't seem to me that it's always been the case that you've worked in, in interactive theorem improvers. How did you get started? I would, it would really have to go back to when I was at Caltech, maybe in 1977 or so. Um, when N.G. de Bruyne came as a visiting lecturer to give a course on Automath. So I signed up for that. I found it fascinating. And in fact, um, I don't remember exactly how this came about, but de Bruyne was quite happy to meet me privately and to talk about things more and to give me preprints of papers and so on. So I, in fact, learned an awful lot about Automath when I was, say, 21 or so. Um, when I went to Stanford, uh, there was, of course, I, I didn't have any idea of trying to continue that in any way. So there was a program verific verification community that I got involved with for a while, but that didn't end so well. Then I ended up doing a thesis on something else. I only came back to LCF because after uh, graduating, I wanted to go overseas for a while, that is to leave the USA for a bit just to see the world, um, and got a job uh, at Cambridge 
on LCF. Can you tell us a little more about, about LCF? Because I think people in my generation, we, we, we don't have that contact with LCF anymore. It's odd because it's the basis of most of the systems that people use and they've lost track of all the ideas. And if I may plug my blog for a moment, I tried to make a point of making blog posts about exactly this sort of thing, things that people have forgotten and shouldn't. So LCF introduced the idea that you got your proof assistant but it's very boring to keep typing often the same commands over and over again. So Robin Milner had the idea, why not give the user a programming language, which is their top level, that they can then automate whatever they want because they have the fully fledged programming language in which they can tell it to do whatever they want, repeat things, do crazy algorithms, all under program control. And so they would never feel obliged to repeat themselves anymore. Now, that was the first idea, but now connected with it, you say, like, how do you then stop them from proving absolutely anything? And the answer is, well, it's got to be a strongly typed programming language, and it needs the idea of an abstract type. I'm not even sure. Are abstract types the notion familiar to you? I Not for me. Is it for you, Cody? I do have a little context, right? The, this, this programming language that you're talking about is is ML, right? The meta language. ML, the original Edinburgh ML. But yes, I think program um, type abstraction was a fundamental aspect of programming language design in the 70s. And it seems to have been forgotten in the way types seem to work these days. Kind of modularity is often transparent. But the idea of an abstract type is you implement an API, and inside the API is the code implementing the API, but you have no idea whatever how the code works or what the internal data structures are. So outside the abstract type, it provides the services of the API, and they're all perfectly sealed, so you can't tamper with them. And the point of that in a theorem prover is you don't want to allow people to put together any formula they like and call it a theorem because obviously most formulas are not theorems. So you say we're going to take the inference rules of our logical formalism and put them inside the abstract type. So the API is literally the inference rules of a logical formalism. And if you want to prove a theorem, you have to prove it by calling these API functions to generate theorems, and clearly the theorems that you generate will only be the ones allowed by the calculus. So if your meta-language, your ML, your, remember we're talking about a proof assistant, which is going to be programmable, but if the logical calculus itself is sealed up inside an abstract type in this way, then the code that you write cannot possibly prove something false. And that is the key idea. And, and th this this idea has a name, right? Um, I, I'm blanking. I'm not sure it has any name other than the LCF architecture. I, okay, I, I'm very bad at, at remembering names, but uh, it seems to me that, that it has something like the X principle name, but... Uh... The other thing you hear is a proof kernel. Now, 
you get a lot of misconceptions. So some people think, oh, this is propositions as types, right? Because you've got a type of theorems and therefore, but no, this has got nothing to do with propositions as types. The other thing people imagine is that this is saving proof objects somewhere. And this is the exact opposite. In fact, one of the explicit design goals was not to save proof objects because Back in 1972, when Robin Milner was doing this stuff, he found he ran out of memory very quickly. And I think even today, although I'm, I'm sitting here with my machine with its 32 gigabytes or whatever, and people still run out of memory because their proofs are a lot bigger. Um, and I never saw the point of wasting memory if you don't have to. So the whole point of the LCF approach is you don't need to store proof objects because your architecture has guaranteed that only legitimate proofs can be made. Right. Um, though, though one might argue that, you know, modern ML language usually has these sort of escape hatches theoretically into the, into these abstract types. If it does, it's not an abstract type. <laughs> well, okay. Um, Fair enough. I know, huh. OCaml has some escape hatches. That there is nothing um, creditable. I mean, uh, this is, shall we say, different from Rust, which has escape hatches, because there you really have to do perform and code. There, I think you are aware that you're cheating if you do that, if you deliberately escape the type system. Um, I don't know that even OCaml lets you break type abstraction because if it does, then what is the point of having it in the first place? Well, I mean, it, it does in a, in a very explicit way, right? Which is this this uh, object, you know, module with with these magic types where you can. Okay, sort of I don't really... know OCaml, um... but but it's but it's there if for the same reason as in Rust, right? It's really when you when you need to break things because you're doing systemz things or you're doing very level things um sometimes you need to break things but not to break type abstraction if what you're saying is true you're basically saying it is not possible to make a logically sound theorem prover in OCaml. Uh, certainly this was the case earlier there was a time when all strings in camel in the camel language the original camel language were mutable which meant you could change any string into any other and of course that breaks the thing totally um, and that is not that is not a suitable meta language for a proof of system. Okay, so you, we we have we have a very good meta language for and for for proof assistance and, and ML was being used to develop LCF, and you were working on LCF um, with LCF in, in Cambridge. So you were working implementing LCF or working using LCF? Well. It's funny, just exactly today I published a blog post on this. But anyway, let me tell you. So when I arrived in 1982, uh, Edinburgh LCF had been built, and there it was. Uh, it was implemented partly in Lisp and partly in its own ML. Oh, so the Lisp was partly, partly the ML implementation was coded in Lisp, but also because ML was extremely slow, a lot of the low-level logic functions were also coded in Lisp. Um, over time, I 
at Cambridge for the next couple of years, I decided to rebuild some things. I got the ML compiler to run much faster by getting it to um, actually compile the Lisp code that it generated. So it translated ML into Lisp, which was uninterpreted. But if you could compile it, you could get something like a factor of 20 speed up, which clearly is very noticeable. Um, I added some other things to the logic like existential quantifiers and or and things that had been left out for some reason. Uh, and I added a whole bunch of tactics and tacticals to make it give it a much more expressive language uh, to make it much more user usable and comfortable. But and again, this is odd because I said I just wrote the blog post exactly today. So it's all fresh in my mind. LCF stands for logic of computable functions. And this was a logic that nobody really wanted. It was a domain, it's a logic of domain theory with um, continuous functions and Scott domains. And there was a brief flash of interest of this in the 1970s that coincided with denotational semantics. And very promptly, everyone forgot about it and nobody wanted to do this anymore. So I built this system that no one had any interest in as a tool to use, but the guts of it were used in the Hall system, in the New Perl system, and I think also Gerard Wett at INRIA. They also used it, I think, very likely early implementations of the calculus of constructions, which turned into Coq, also used it. And by it, you mean that architecture? Um, oh, they all use the architecture, but they use the code as well. Oh, really? Oh, wow. That's, that's really amazing. I, I had no idea. I had no idea of that. So LCF is kind of, in a sense, the, the father of all living theorem provers right now. Well, for Hall, I think even a lot of the code is inherited. And you, you could check, I suppose, you can download the sources of these various versions of LCF and Hall if you wanted to check you know how much code is still there as for a cock i would say probably not so i think they did early experiments on the calculus of constructions using this they then built their own ml so they built the first camel system and so on um i believe cock has an lcf architecture inside but i'm not certain you also mentioned that you you actually came in contact with this world of theorem provers through Automath. Does Automath and LCF has anything in common? Not really. Uh, I've heard people refer to Automath as an ITP, as a proof assistant, but look, seriously, nothing that takes a deck of punch cards as its input can be called a proof assistant. It's a very important Automath was an absolutely transformative technological development, but it is not a proof assistant in the modern sense at all. So you don't think that the, the modern proof assistants um, somehow learn from what Automath and the Brown oh, was they doing? Did. I mean, in particular is very clearly um, extends, uh, takes on the I the. There are ideas in the calculus of constructions that are clearly inspired by Automath and techniques as well, brought over, I think, from Automath. Now, for myself, the only thing I finally kept from Automath is simply the idea of formalizing mathematics and some of De Bruyne's insights. Now, his writings are still um, highly prescient. Now, he 
anticipated at the very start things that we encounter today. That is amazing. That is beautiful. So then, okay, so then now that you, you mentioned that LCF wasn't really what people, what mathematicians was looking for in Ethereum provers back then, then you started working on Isabel. Okay, so I... This is a complicated story. So at the same time I was doing the LCF stuff, I also was getting involved with the people at Chalmers University in Gothenburg, Sweden, and learning about Martin-Lev type theory. Um, and they wanted an implementation of Martin-Lev type theory. And they had written some code, but I have to say, I wasn't very impressed with it. It looked very inefficient to me. Um, and I think I wasn't immediately aware that the New Pearl guys were also working on a gigantic implementation of Martin Love type theory. But I think, again, their approach is not one that I would have adopt, adopted. In fact, in the New Pearl, the first version, had some uh, unbelievably inefficient choices of which, the, for example, if you define a thing, uh, all definitions were regarded as macros, which meant if you start defining about 10 things, one in terms of the other, you got an exponential blow up and you're doomed immediately. So I thought I would do my own implementation of martin Love type theory using the LCF architecture and using a number of ideas that um, I'd come across in my few years at Cambridge. There was some very clever idea by Stefan Sokolovsky, um, who was, I think, from the Polish Academy of Sciences, on how to get unification into the LCF architecture. Uh, and, and that would allow you to solve goals <clears throat> and instantiate unknowns in goals, which seemed a really cool thing to be able to do. And the funny story is, I thought to do the proof objects in constructive type theory, which are simply part of the formalism, like the proof objects are not some invisible extra add-on, they're right there in the formalism. And if you want them to work, clearly you're going to build them up using this unification process. And it was clear that ordinary first order unification could never do the job because these things are full of lambda terms. And it was purely by chance that when on a visit to Gerard Huet in Inria a couple of years earlier, he had he had this tendency to suddenly start raving about something. So one day he went to the blackboard and wrote all this stuff, of which I retained very little except that maybe this would solve my problem. So somehow I managed to remember what it was called, higher order unification, and dug up the paper um, photocopied it and so on and figured it out and said, yeah, this is exactly what I need. And I remember he was going to visit us in Cambridge and I spent three days frantically uh, implementing it like as you know intensively as I could to get this wretched thing running so I could say, look, Gerard, I implemented higher order unification. But the funny thing about, see, I put it in so that I could deal with the unification of the proof terms in Martin Love type theory, but I soon recognized that with higher order unification, the original LCF approach could be generalized in a very powerful way. You see, in the original LCF approach, every inference rule is a function. It takes its premises of the rule or the arguments of the function, and when you call it, it checks the premises are well-formed, and its result is the conclusion of the inference. So that's what an inference rule is. 
Um, <clears throat> but there are a lot of disadvantages of that. The main thing is if you want to do a backward proof, you have to write another function, which is the inverse of this function to take apart your sub goals. And then you need to tie it up somehow with the actual inference rule in the first place so that you can get your theorem out in the end. So there's a lot of ugly work involved. And I realized with higher order unification, I could throw all that away and simply say, you can have a declarative syntax in which you write your rule and your rule is simply a piece of syntax, which through higher order unification, you can unify the premise with an existing theorem if you want to go forward, or you can unify the conclusion with something else if you want to go backwards. So you can suddenly stick rules together by unification and grow your proof kind of in all directions at the same time. I see, like a, like a prologue. Very much like prologue. Indeed, it's, it is prologue with higher order unification, basically. And what, basic, what all higher order of unification is, it is simply unification where you have typed lambda terms so that um, you can, sometimes you have to invent functions to solve a thing, which means it's, um, it's undecidable in general. That's not as bad as it sounds. Uh, so I was able to throw away like the whole original part of this Martin Left type theory prover and just say, okay, now you just have to type in the rules of Martin Left type theory and put them in a file and then it can work with them. But if you want to do first order logic, you can type in those rules and so on. So suddenly I had uh, an implementation of a logical framework probably before Around the same time, the notion of logical framework was being talked about. And in Edinburgh, they invented a thing called the Edinburgh Logical Framework. Um, but there was no implementation. Now, my situation was the opposite. I had an implementation, but at the time, I didn't have any kind of logical explanation of exactly what it was doing. And later, it turned out, um, I thought, why don't I take the Edinburgh Logical Framework and throw away all the proof terms? Um, and Thierry Cocon, you know of him, he's clearly from the Coq type theory world. So Thierry was, I think, my postdoc at the time, and he said, that's nothing but intuitionistic higher order logic. So I was very happy to hear that because that meant there was no need to justify a new formalism. I could just say, okay, I am using intuitionistic higher order logic as a logical framework, and that is the underlying basis of Isabel. Yeah, uh, that's very cool. It's great to hear about this stuff, uh, which I had a passing knowledge of. Um, fun. This is really a fun story. Uh, of course, Thierry, I don't know. I, I have a philosophy where, you know, Thierry was part of this French group of logicians, and then he, he moved to Gothenburg. And so he sort of became more aligned with the Swedish school of type theory. And so there's this kind of fun genealogy of like how people approach type theories in different countries um and and of course you know it's not like a per country you know basis but but there are some trends and philosophies well there are of course so okay um this is this is the setup when you started working developing isabel because now you have the proper formalism on how to think about these inference rules and how to actually implement a very easy to use, let it put it that way, very easy to use interactive theorem prover. And then um, with these ideas of higher order unification, this is when you think 
we got the new generation of ITPs such as Isabel and 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 Koch. I don't think Koch existed yet. Um, and Isabel wasn't particularly easy to use yet, but it had some very interesting new ideas in it. And I was playing with all kinds of things. I tried to do a little program synthesis in Martin Love type theory because it was being pushed at the time as a very principled way of doing program synthesis. Now, as far as I know, that never got anywhere. Um, and indeed, the experiments I tried, it was really quite hard even to do the very small programs and make them come out. But it was certainly, it, it could do things that other proof assistants couldn't do. But just to put you in context, at the same time, the people with the Hall system were, I think they had already verified a, a microcomputer design of Mike Gordon's. So they were looking at, you know, they were trying to do real hardware problems. And Hall, I guess if you say around 1990, had really exploded around the world uh, for people who wanted to verify hardware, you know, today. While I was tinkering with Isabel and doing a lot of cool experiments, but I don't know that it was that good for anything in 1990 or so. I'm surprised that you didn't mention Tobias Nipko yet. Okay, well, he wasn't there at the very beginning. So I'm trying to remember when he did come. I had some awful grant with some, well, money is always great, but the objectives of the grant were ridiculous. But I was able to hire Tobias, and we oh. agreed he wouldn't try to implement any of the objectives of the grant because they didn't make any sense. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to remember exactly when he came, but it may have been around 1987. And he was very enthusiastic and energetic. And I think one of the first things he did was he wrote a, a really good parser, which is still the parser used today for Isabel. I'm talking here about the oh, parser wow. of the formulas, not the parser of the kind of outer language. Oh, okay. um, he already was very interested in simplification. In fact, he came as a rewriting expert. So he wrote the simplifier, which... I mean, he did a lot of simplification experiments involving a prologue-style approach at first. And then I think he threw that away and wrote a new simplifier. If you look at his papers from the late 80s, there are a lot of things about rewriting in Isabel. Um, and then his first really, really big contribution, he decided we had to compete with Hall. He was always, he was actually always very competitive. We have to do this because other guys are getting ahead of us. So he said, we really have to compete with Hall. A big limitation of Isabel at the time, well, we could say it was very pure, but pure things often are rather limited in what it could do. So I had one kind of variable, and this variable could stand for any syntactic purpose in a logic, and they could all be used in rules. <clears throat> and that was fine for the types of Martin Love type theory. So in Mar if Martin Love type theory, you could have variables for the types, variables for the terms, and they would be kept apart because there was a kind of internal type system, exactly what Martin Love called his calculus of arities, actually. But Martin Love's arities are just simple type theory, in fact. So it had its own internal type system whose job was to keep track of the syntax so that one thing is a term, another thing is a type, another thing maybe is a 
dependent types. So it is a mapping from terms to types and all of those could be kept apart. Um, but now for higher order logic, types don't work that way. Types are kind of attached to things so that if you have true, the type Boolean is attached to it. And the fact that true is Boolean is not a thing you infer. It comes for free with the syntax. So to be as wanted to be able to support higher order logic directly. And that meant a lot of really pervasive changes that involved turning using the internal polymorphism of Isabel, which had previously been kept away from users and allowing it to be actually available to users, which then introduced his whole, uh, his order sorted polymorphism, which he had to introduce in order to regulate polymorphism, because if he did it in a naive way, everything would fall apart. So he, of course, his own Can background you? in rewriting and unification was extremely helpful here because he invented this refined polymorphism that allowed us to put in higher order logic in a way that looked like higher order logic, allowed us, if we wanted to support many ordered, <clears throat> excuse me, many sorted first order logic, which is of course something like higher order logic, but not higher order. And all of those different things could suddenly be accommodated in his system. Um, and then uh, somehow he, and presumably now Marcus Wenzel, as he was then, um, came in and went from the order sorted polymorphism to the uh, axiomatic type classes, which have since taken over the um, proof assistant world. Can, can I, I mean, this is one of the things I understand the least about uh, Isabel is is this kind of this distinction between the user level situation and the implementation level situation essentially you know th this this you know this logical framework stuff can, can you just expand on it a little bit yes um, this is another thing that confuses everybody um so the when you have a logical framework it means at a minimum you have certain notions that are in built into the system. So the notion that one thing implies another because you can't write an inference rule without that. <clears throat> the notion that a thing is somehow holds for all X because... So so just to be clear, the, the, we're talking essentially what would write in paper as these horizontal... Yeah, parts, that's, right? that that's is a good way to put it. So the implication, the notion of implication I'm talking about would be written as a horizontal rule on a piece of paper. Um, the thing that you I would call, say, universal quantification is typically written in the book as some kind of asterisk saying X is not free here or right. there. Um, and also to go with that, the notion of a built-in definition as, uh, as a kind of meta-equality. So these are part of the logical framework. And one of the great things there, just to contrast with both Koch and Hall, so you'll note that every Koch proof begins with intros, uh, if you know Koch. And every Hall proof begins with a thing called strip tack, which is doing the same thing. What they're doing is removing the 
a, a prefix of quantifiers and implications from the thing you're trying to prove. And that's because everything that they prove in these systems is a universally quantified implication because that's mostly it's couple of things imply the conclusion. Now, <clears throat> that's the kind of thing we get away from because in Isabel, the metalogic takes care of the, that outer structure is typically a inference rule structure, which the system deals with directly. And equally, if you have an, an, another theorem, you want to use it, you just stuff it in and the unification will match the relevant parts. Whereas in something like, uh, Hall, and I suspect also Koch, to use an existing theorem, you have to say, okay, now take off the quantifiers and put in, you know, put in a, a three here and a seven there or whatever. Right, right, correct. Of course, that's, I doubt in either system, uh, one has to do this by hand in most cases, right? Be because there is, you know, on, on the top layer, there's unification happening. Well, they will typically, I know, I know that in Hall, there are things you can call to do this, but the fact is you still have to call them and it still has to yes. be done. Not, not by the kernel, but yes. Yeah. I've noticed that you talk about a, a lot about the difference between Isabel and Hall. Uh, correct me if I'm mistaken, but nowadays I've seen a lot of mention as if Isabel and Hall is the same. Was there some sort of merge between? them no no okay so firstly <laughs> the hall family is quite big so there's hall four there's hall light there's a thing called proof power and there might be a couple of others um they're all very close to the original lcf so they one of the distinguishing things is that you still have a few enter most of these systems, you are literally at the front end of an ML system. And if you want to type uh, the definition of the factorial function and calculate the factorial of 18, you can do it because you've got the whole programming environment there. Um, so Isabel Hall is implementing essentially the same logic as those systems, although it's extended with type classes in particular, but otherwise, you know, higher order logic, they all go back to a ch paper written by Church in 1940, and in that sense, they're all similar. But the actual prover is completely different. No, Isabella is based on a logical framework, and everything that you do, you know, is done in a very different way. Gotcha. Gotcha. Thanks for the clarification. Now, you, you, you say that higher order logic and correct me if I'm, if, if I got this wrong, but simple types and simple type Lambda calculus is more or less the same thing. Not quite. So these first you have the Lambda calculus, the untyped, which is a cool thing, but, uh, it's not usable as the basis for a logic because it would be inconsistent as church discovered. Then if you put types on top of it, you have a much weaker calculus but now you can no longer define fixed point combinators that lead to contradictions. Now, if you put on top of that a few logical inference rules, that's where you get higher order logic. So if you like, the simple type lambda calculus is the syntactic base of um, higher order logic, as it is of Martin Love type theory. 
although Martin Luff calls it the calculus of arities, but if you look at it, it is actually the same thing as a simply typed lambda calculus. So the calculus, so Martin Luff type theory is pretty much the same as simple type lambda calculus. Well, all it's doing is saying a particular constant like the pi symbol takes two arguments and when it has both its arguments, it's what they call saturated, which means it doesn't want any more arguments and it can be regarded as a well-defined thing. And the first argument for a pi operator is going to be a type and the second argument is going to be a dependent type. And so you can assign arities to all those things. And all that simply does is tell you when have you written a, a well-formed type, in this case, a pi type. But this, the system of arities is essentially simply typed lambda calculus. Gotcha. Sorry, sorry to, to, to talk about this so much is because I was, we see this in papers every single time. Like we're just talking about simple type, about Martin Love type theory and this and that, but all the, like for a new researcher like me, it's not very clear what exactly they mean by that, because I think it's like, it's already lost in history. What is like the actual, what, what does it actually mean to be? Martin Love type theory. You know what I well, mean? Well, things have changed a lot. <laughs> That's actually why I left the Martin Love type theory, because um, it is a thing where ideas keep changing. And certainly then the it was a thing where you had to go along or you had to find something else to do. I, okay. I, I, I find this fun and exciting, right? So, so one of the beautiful things of the calculus of constructions is there's this very uniform treatment given to this, you know, like uh, Lawrence says, there's this kind of arity calculus and, you know, the lower level uh, calculus that allow you to, you know, do the proof constructions. Um, and then, you know, Berendrick came along and the, the Lambda cube was created and it just gave this very uniform treatment to all these different type systems at these different levels, uh, which is elegant, um, but arguably not really, um, you know, not necessarily that relevant to building an actual system that proves these things, right? Because, you know, you have practical considerations. Well, that's theory and I have nothing against theory. Um, you can't build a good system unless you know some theory. But I um, I never, this was even in the very beginning with Ultramath, I always had anxieties about it looks right, but how do you know it's really right? And I never really had an answer to that. Um, the only answer was these basically strong normalization proofs. And that wasn't the kind of answer I wanted. Now, for Martin Love type theory, there's a very simple answer, as long as you accept the Heiting's interpretations of the logical constants, you can read them off in rules of Martin Love type theory directly. And you can say, yep, that's it. He's captured exactly what Heiting had in mind. And indeed, it would be very interesting to see how Heiting would react to the direction constructive logic has taken today. Now, in the case of higher order logic, um, again, the interpretation of things is very, very simple. Could you expand a little more on the differences and the sort of things that you can and cannot do when comparing Hall and full-fledged dependent types as, as Kokan's calculus, as COC in this case, or CIC? 
Well, I think the contrast of what you can can do uh, is a key question of the age, and I think people are exploring it now. It's clear that uh, something like Koch or Lean in its full calculus is much more powerful than high-order logic in terms of what they call proof-theoretic strength. Um, when that matters is the interesting question. So it's very easy to see that higher-order logic lives in a tiny little fragment of set theory called Zermilo set theory. That is not Zermilo-Frankel set theory, but just Zermilo set theory, which is like basically the bottom level of set theory. Um, higher-order logic lives in that, and so I suspect does nearly all mathematics. Now, the calculus of inductive constructions goes well beyond even Zermila-Frankel set theory, and I gather you need something like Tarski-Grothendieck to make sense of it once you start bringing in universes. So you have here a kind of vast world. Um, and the key question is, when do you need it? Yeah, uh, I, I think there's an interesting question. Um, but I, there's also some pragmatics here, which is, um, you know, what can you easily encode using dependent types that maybe is not so easy using, uh, you know, simply typed higher order logic and vice versa. What, you know, is kind of nice and pleasant to do when you're implementing a system based on higher order logic that now becomes kind of scary and difficult when you're implementing a dependent type system. Well, you have um, different things happen. So just last week at the Kikim conference in Tbilisi, which was a great event, by the way. So I saw a talk about graded rings and graded rings are, they seem to be, or you have a family of carrier sets. And when you multiply an element in different carrier sets, they end up in a third carrier set. And there's a calculation there. And I know a lot of people would say, oh, yeah, they, that needs dependent types. But that isn't true. What is true is that the carrier sets cannot be types in simple type theory. So, of course, they were using lean, and they were using types, and they ran into a problem very quickly, which was that um, they wanted to show a certain identity, and I think it involved the something to do with the associativity of multiplication. And so then the indexes in their carrier sets were getting multiplied, and it was like they were both A times B times C, but the bracketing didn't agree. So they were trying to prove an associative law for the ring, and it involved an associative law for the integers, which they had, but the dependent types don't work with ordinary equality, only with definitional equality. And they then, and this is where it got really scary, they outlined six approaches to tackle the problem. And I don't remember any of the six, but they put them all there on a slide. And then they had a kind of plus and minus drawbacks of good for this and bad for that and good for this and bad for that. And I remember that thinking, well, approach three seemed to have the fewest problems. And then they said, well, yeah, we thought that, but then we had to, we decided to use approach two, which looked from the, their own checklist absolutely terrible. And uh, this is the issue with dependent types, is if you want to say a type can depend on a term, 
that's great. But if you then say, but it doesn't recognize equality, then I think there's a bit of false advertising going on there. Now, I don't know. I would like to try and take a look at graded rings myself, but for our group, it is a matter of the manpower we have and whether that is a priority for us to, to look at that particular example. Now, talking about the differences and, and strengths or weaknesses, seems pretty clear to me that Hall is the absolute winner when we come to talk about automation. You mean Isabel, I hope. Right. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> Isabel, Isabel is the absolute winner. There is so many automation tools. Has it? Did you, did you think about this when you're earlier developing Hall? Did you think about how much automation you could get? Because I've noticed that SMTs came into the game much later, right? Well, I had uh, automation in mind from the very beginning, as I mentioned, uh, for the very, very first version of Isabel before it was even really Isabel, I wanted unification in the kernel because unification is the basis of a lot of proof search things. And it is really obvious that formal, completely formal proofs are gigantic and you don't have the hope, any hope of constructing formal proofs without as much automation as possible. Um, by the early 90s, there was already some pretty good, what I call classical reasoning, that is in addition to the rewriter, the ability to prove um, identity, you know, increasingly difficult tautologies, not merely in first order logic, because you're almost never just in first order logic. Usually you've got other stuff of your application. You might have sets. You might have other things that you've introduced yourself, other relations and things. So the ability to undertake searches using forward and backwards chaining and try and prove things more or less by brute force was a priority from an early stage. Then I got sidetracked into the security protocol stuff, which I don't know that we really have time to go into in any detail, but I discovered from other people's work on crypto protocols that they had benefited a lot from using resolution. And I thought at the very least, I could beef up my own automation in terms of logic. And then that was another big sub project to strengthen the the automation and this is well before sledgehammer so this is the late 90s now sledgehammer started around 2003 and was an attempt to bring the power of these you know, really powerful tools like uh, vampire e and spas um to bear uh, and again this it was a focused priority because automation is the the, the single most important thing at least in my opinion and I have to say, if you're on the dependent types thing, again, it is infinitely easier to do um, automation in simple types. Um, one reason is simply you have a much simpler syntax. I think another reason is that the dependent type systems, they seem to keep evolving a bit. Um, so back when Mike Gordon was doing hardware with higher order logic, and he credited the idea to someone else called Keith Hanna, but Hanna himself 
decided to, for hardware you needed dependent types because all your registers had like their n bits long and your wires or everything is n bits long so he said clearly you need dependent types for hardware verification and he started trying to define a calculus for this and as far as i know he never finished because this is a problem the things get much harder whereas gordon went on um or mike i should say went on proving all these systems and somehow coping with the fact that, okay, it's a 32-bit thing, whatever, he didn't care. He wrote 32 in there, um, proved the thing and went on to the next great project. So he was able to actually do stuff. That's a fair assessment. Uh, I, f I feel like we're in a debate because I, I, I've noticed that the, the new SMT lib standard is actually based on dependent types for partly exactly this reason of like fixed uh, width bit vectors, um, which is kind of fun, kind of full circle, right? From, uh, you know, wh whenever this was taking place, uh, which presumably was the 80s. Right, and SMTlib is, is in Z3, which is much, much newer than that, right? Um, yeah, yeah, but, but of course, uh, yeah, SMTlib, sorry. Uh, SMTlib is a standard. Z3 happens to implement one version of that standard. Oh, okay. I didn't know um, that. But yeah, SMTlib 3 is not yet supported by Z3. I don't think the Hall people used SMT that much. They did some work with BDDs that I'm not, I was never fully a part of that world anyway. Now that you now that you understand much better what are the intricacies of developing Ethereum provers, if you could if you could go back and implement things from scratch, what would you have done differently? If anything. Well, the thing is, and this is a funny thing, because stuff has been written and rewritten so many times. Um, it's very little of the original Isabel, which is immediately visible, because especially so all the layers of stuff that Macarius Ventil has written, you know, going back from when he entered the scene in the late 90s until today. And he's just contributed tons and tons of stuff from the ESAR structured language um, to the user interfaces, the multi-core stuff, so it all runs in parallel and you get amazing results there. Um, he's made contributions all over the place and it's not, you can't now imagine doing away with any of those things. <coughs> Sorry, they're all more or less essential. If I think of one slight thing that maybe I did wrong was I would perhaps have left higher order unification out of the kernel. See, you could do that. It's, it's a very, very big and tricky piece of code and you could argue that such a thing shouldn't be in the kernel. All the kernel needs is to be given, is to be given the unifier it can check the unifier and then do the inference and you would have a more reliable system. Yes. I've just, I've actually discussed this exact thing with Marcarius. Um, we, we used to be uh, office next to each other when I was in Paris a long time ago. The thing well, is though, I think people get, well, the idea of correctness is itself complex. So there was the issue. Oh God, I forgot the guy's names, but these guys, around the 2016 or so discovered a rather devious issue with definitions in Isabel that you could 
trick a circular, you could trick it into accepting a circular definition in a really obscure way. Now, the funny thing is, for the first many, many years of Isabel, definitions were not really checked. So you could declare constants at the top of your theory. And if you want to declare A equals B plus 1 and B equals A, say, right, fine. Um, and if you get a contradiction, it's your fault because you shouldn't have done that because those are your definitions. Now, and I see you're looking up at the ceiling and wondering, is that really right? And indeed, you know, it depends on what promises we make. So if we promise that your declarations will be checked for circularity, then of course they should be. Um, although your definitions can be non-circular and still completely wrong. So I will always say you're always responsible for your own definitions. But anyway, they discovered at some point, you know, People put in circularity checks, but these guys discovered an incredibly devious way of getting a circular definition through. Um, and now the question is, do you call this a soundness bug or not? They certainly did. Um, and then what they did in response to that, well, they managed to fix it. And at the same time, they did a whole formalization of the... Isabel's formalism, Isabel Hall's formalism, I should say, including the type class system, because I think type classes had been involved or type definitions had been involved in order to prove that this new check that they implemented really guaranteed the soundness of definitions. And what did they, did this development have a name that you happen to remember? I No, I can almost remember the name of the one of the authors, but I will hardly mispronounce it. It is something like Andre Kuntzar. I could probably look him up later if you want to know and give you the exact reference. I noticed that you're pretty lenient about allowing circular definitions. Why, why is that? Oh, we don't allow that anymore. I did in the 90s, and we had more important things to worry about. Gotcha. It sounds like um, Lawrence is suggesting that these might be regarded as axioms. And, and mm -hmm. if you look at these as axioms, then yeah, then, then, you know, the user adds axioms and then they have to sort of justify them to themselves. Right. But if you regard them as not axioms, but just like say shorthand for something else, then yeah, the system had better check that these. Well, this is are... one of the things that probably happened in the eighties. I think it was Mike Gordon who, who said we need to distinguish definitions from axioms. And uh, it was a, a slow process because it, you know, even in the very beginning, he found that his initial notion of definition wasn't quite sound and so on. So talking, talking about things that are more important to work on, I've noticed that you invested a significant amount of research in induction recursion. Is it that hard to get no. it right? Uh, inductive definitions are almost trivial. I think the first one I put in for, in fact, for Isabel ZF, so the set theory instance, which is easier without types, uh, it was just a couple of days' work. So that is inductive definitions of sets is easy. <clears throat> uh, and so is co-inductive. Co-inductive is just a greatest fixed point instead of a least fixed point. That's really easy to do. What? But there are two things that are tricky, especially in a typed world. One of them is recursive data types, and the other is um, recursive functions. So in the case of recursive data types, this 
bounded natural functor thing that they now have in Isabel, which is super sophisticated. I don't know how that works at all. The earlier one, which was my, which was at least partly my work, can't remember now, um, the trick was to give yourself the kind of, if you like, uh, modeling clay that you use to create types in a strongly typed world is actually quite hard. In set theory, in fact, making a data type package was trivial because with sets, you don't have any type constraints and you can just stuff them together in different ways. And it was, in fact, really easy to do data types as well. Now for recursive functions, and clearly you need recursive functions, um, the first thing you can do is define um, a notion of well-founded recursion. That already is an awful beast to prove. That was one of the things Tobias did way back, was get a nice proof of well-founded recursion. But then to make it nice to use, that required a lot of ingenuity. And here the PhD thesis of Alexander Krauss at TUM at Munich. Um, it's a very impressive piece of work in which he copes with a lot of the famous examples of the past, like the 91 function, um, and even with things that have a that are partial functions where you're not sure at first what the domain of the termination is, where maybe you you can prove. Um, sometimes it is very difficult to prove termination, and what you do is you admit the function conditionally, um, and then gradually, as you learn more about it, you're able to prove that it terminates maybe on the entire type but kind of incrementally, as it were. Well, you reason about the domain of definition until you show that it is, uh, is everything. Is that supported in Isabel? Yeah. Sort of gradual, okay. You mentioned that doing data types is, is kind of easy, but doing their induction schemes is, is easy as well, or is that a little harder? Um, all that is pretty easy. As I said, it's, it's much easier in Isabel ZF because you don't have the type constraints tripping you up all the time. Uh, I believe in systems like Coq, they're all built into the kernel, aren't they? Correct. If I remember correctly, yep. Yeah, now you see, we don't do that. And the simple type theory is already very powerful and things like recursion and data types and um, all of that is definable in simple type theory and you don't need to keep extending the kernel. Pattern matching as well. I've heard that pattern matching is in the cock kernel for function. Yes, that is also correct. Yeah. Um, well, okay. So, so there are two different issues here. Um, the the first is yes. Uh, these these are in the kernel and they are complex, and, and somehow they're more complex because of dependent types. Um, and then the second issue is um, is is how constructive and how uh, you know intentional is your logic? If it's very extensional and it's and it's uh, classical, then I think you can get away with a much simpler um, kernel of you know what 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 you build off of, and then you can prove certain things. That could um, well be. I have to say, I do think that the attitude to constructivism in Koch has never made any sense to me. 
So if you take a Martin Left type theory, you have a very clear constructive story um, in terms of what they can do. I mean, I'm not so familiar with their work today, but at least it makes sense what they do. In Koch, um, there seems to be an idea that you have to be constructive, but I'm not sure there's any idea why. And I made a blog post about this that I think annoyed a lot of people, but I was not trying to say that constructive logic is bogus. I was merely saying that many examples of it were, shall we say, pointless. So if you are doing a thing about a lot of finite objects, very likely that the constructiveness of your proof is not actually as significant in any way. Or if you have a formalization of the real numbers and you've basically assumed the law of excluded middle many times in your assumption of the real axioms, then to say I'm going to be constructive now doesn't make any sense at all. It's like if you're a vegan and, oh, my starter is foie gras, but <laughs> the rest is all vegan. That's a very <laughs> powerful <laughs> metaphor. doesn't work that way. That's beautiful. So the, the lean guys, basically, they gave up on constructivism, and they're proving all this mathematics. Meanwhile, the Martin Luff guys, now I'm not very familiar with the work that's being done with Inagda and all of that, but I would suspect it makes a whole lot more sense from a constructive point of view. Yes, um, I, I would tend to agree, though. I, I, I'm much closer with the cock people, so I don't want to anger them. Uh but, but yes, uh, Agda is very committed to type theory and constructivism, and they have a very powerful dependent type system that Koch lacks. And then in, in contrast, Lean has you know this classical stuff, and, and so they have this freedom of classical logic that Koch also lacks. So in some ways, it's you know uh, the worst of both worlds. It's been my impression that you somehow want some constructivism in order to extract your your programs is that is that incorrect well the extraction of programs was promised in the 80s but it never really happened not in any useful way um and i've not been interested in extracting programs i had a student who unfortunately had to leave but uh he his project before he left was a thing I believe he called classical computational logic and it's still distributed with Isabel because why not even though it has been dead for 30 years and basically he said the trouble with deriving a program from a proof is that it's much easier to write code than it is to write a proof so the whole approach is wrong-headed and especially if you want to write a program with particular properties or a particular structure, let's say you are know that for performance reasons you need it to divide the input roughly in half to get n log n, uh, you would write the code rather than trying to dream up a proof that somehow would give you the same thing. And then his objective was to make it as simple as possible to prove things, or maybe to interactively refine your code and um, and verify it. So what I said, he went away, he left all this stuff saying, don't, don't ignore it. But of course I did because we all had our own priorities. But if anyone wants to dig up this code after 30 years, it's still um, 
distributed with every version of Isabel. Um, I I would imagine that there is some way to extract programs from some form of Isabel code, right? Okay, there is the, or what do they call it? Um, that is quite a different thing. So it is merely the observation that higher order logic, a lot of it is executable and looks like executable code. So if you write a recursive function definition in Isabel Hall, um, it might well be executable. Um, and what you can then do is say, right, turn this into code in my favorite programming language and run it. That is not quite the same as extracting code from a proof. Uh, I guess they also call that program extraction. And in fact, I think they do the same thing in Coq. That is, you, you run actual stuff you've written? Yes. Okay, so that is different from... Well, it, it's a little complicated. Uh, there, there, yeah, there are roughly two things, right? You can run Coq code directly, or you can say, this is Coq code, but actually it's... You know, if you squint your eyes, it's OCaml code, and you can just generate actual OCaml source code from the COG code. You can also do some Haskell as well. But can you, the idea that I proved this theorem in COG saying for all X exists Y something, is there a way of getting from the proof object an executable? No, there, no. There is, that... actually. There is, because that's also a COG function, so you can actually get the function in, in OCaml for that, especially if it's that... an existential, right? That's not quite true, unfortunately. Um, okay. that, that idea has kind of fallen out of fashion. Um, so that's really interesting because that was the point of the whole thing long ago. But okay, so this kind of program extraction does exist in Isabel and it's used quite extensively. The thing, among other things, they have, um, I think they are called code extraction rules or something. So you can define a thing in one way, which is maybe not executable, and then prove an equivalent identity that is that looks more like more efficient code. And so you can prove all these things, and, and you give them this um, executable attribute. And then when the code generator comes to that function, it will use those instead of the definition. And I know people have implemented, I think, some really quite big systems in which they've actually extracted all the code from an Isabel development. That's not a thing I know a lot about. I'm sorry. I may have said a whole bunch of incorrect things already. We are, we are all doing our best effort. You're good. <laughs> well, so actually, go, going back to the use of ML, correct me if I'm mistaken, but ML was firstly built in order to implement LCF, right? Yeah. And so what were the ideas baked in ML that makes it actually good for writing theorem provers? Because it's, it is still the language used for, for writing the major theorem provers, except for Lean now, I think. Well, arguably, Lean right now is written in Lean itself. So, um, you know, it's not right. completely different. <laughs> well, Lean, Lean is an unusual case. So ML... I guess it had to be type safe and it had to have abstract types for the reason I gave, that is to encapsulate the proof kernel. Um, and I don't think at the time they particularly had in mind that you would write your whole theorem prover in it. As I mentioned, Edinburgh LCF was coded in Lisp. 
So I think it just had to have enough of a basic functional language that people could do some simple automated things involving recursive functions. And they built their little tactic language in ML, which was some very simple things. They provided exceptions because tactics could fail. And so they regarded exceptions as a necessary part. So if you like, yeah, the design was very much predicated on this one application. It's very interesting. I also noticed that you're working on Matty Tarski. It seems to me another term prover. Could you tell us a little more about okay. it? Metatarsky is a completely different thing. It came, I think, from when Jeremy Avigod proved the prime number theorem. And he mentioned to me that he had to prove an enormous number of inequalities involving the log function. And wouldn't it be nice if there was a way of doing this automatically? And I put in a grant proposal. It was relatively straightforward to get research funding back then um, to look into the problem of proving inequalities involving functions like the log. And I got it. And the funny thing is, the original idea was some kind of naive heuristic tactic driven thing that would um, maybe a bit like the Fourier Motzkin arithmetic decision procedure would do some simple minded um, backtracking processing of an inequality until it managed to massage it into a form that was trivial and then it would be proved. And instead, I ended up with a kind of very high-tech thing involving, on the one hand, a theorem prover, that is the Metis prover written by Joe Hurd, um, and a thing called QuepCAD, which is a decision procedure for um, basically for the real numbers, including multiplication, by the way, so it's not linear arithmetic. <clears throat> and the combination of the two things, plus some information about the particular functions you're interested in, you know, log, exponential, sine, cosine, arctangent, those kind of functions. Basically, any well-behaved function can be put into this. You just have to put in some information about it. And it automatically proves some quite complicated problems involving functions like those. Is it also a tactic-based? Oh, this is a fully automatic, it's no connection with Isabel, whatever. Mm -hmm. There have occasionally been times when people say, oh, we need to put Metatarsky into Isabel, but um, it's not clear how. One of the big obstacles is that the decision procedures for the reals are doubly exponential and very complicated. And how to get such a thing into a theorem prover that has a kernel so that you really know that you've proved it is not a problem anyone has solved. You want to tell us more about your work on the incompleteness theorems? Um, how did you got interested in trying to achieve that? Well, this was one of these bizarre coincidences. So there was, I think, a meeting at the Newton Institute on set theory. Um, Peter Kirke, um, who was interested in set theory, and he'd heard about earlier work I'd done on set theory on the uh, constructability and asked if I would give a presentation. So I went over and did a presentation of, you know, I'd formalized Gödel's proof of the relative consistency of the axiom of choice. And then a guy in the audience who I think was Joel Hamkins, though I'm not certain, 
said, you ought to do that for the incompleteness theorem. Um, and the kind of implication, I mean, no one could say that the second incompleteness theorem was in any way dubious, but it is true that existing proofs were extremely technical and messy. Um, and now someone else who was present, Jesse Alama, sent me a very nice um, treatment of the incompleteness theorems by a Polish logician whose name, should I even attempt to pronounce, something like Zwierkowski. <clears throat> so, and I looked at this and I just thought, oh, maybe I could do this. And there were some big stings in the tail here, but... Uh, it turned out I could do it. Do you want to talk about the stings? I, I have some follow-up questions, but uh, I'll I'll try to keep it keep it short. Um, one of them it's clear I it is a tricky proof, and I think there are times when I didn't understand what was going on. This is a thing where you have an encoded calculus, and sometimes you're talking about um, a term of the calculus, and sometimes an encoded term of the calculus. And it's easy to forget how many levels of quotation you're working through. And I think I remember proving a thing very elaborately and thinking I've done this case and it turned out I hadn't treated it at all because the thing needed to be quoted or maybe it was quoted and I needed the unquoted. I, I can't remember. Um, but also there was the thing at the very end which she had um, kind of not really finished in a way that I could use. And I had to think of a completely different way of doing it, which luckily in the end wasn't too bad. Hmm. So, so there was a gap in this extremely detailed. I paper. think I think I could say there was a gap. Yes. That's yeah. That's uh, I think an interesting proposition, right? Because uh, you know, this was an extremely detailed proof. I'm sorry, I, I'm rambling, but as a historical side note, Gödel was famous for being extremely punctilious about his proofs and, um, you know, spending, you know, months and months writing them up. And even he sort of was writing up the second incompleteness proof. And at some point he's like, I'll write up a much more detailed version of this, but this is the basic idea. And then he never actually wrote up that, that second version. So even Gödel was kind of like, you know, this is too messy. Uh, you get the gist, uh, which was very uncharacteristic of him. Well, indeed, his paper is called uh, Essential Incomplete and Blah, 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 One. <laughs> and two never appeared. <laughs> yeah, there's a long tradition, I think, of uh, that, you know, I'll finish this proof in another two appear paper. <laughs> I'm curious, how long did it take you? to finish this formalization? Oh, I can't remember off the top of my head. I would have thought it took a couple of months. Um, I got married in the middle, which introduced a delay. Um, <laughs> but um, I think I'd finished the first incompleteness theorem within about six months. And the second took another couple of months. So I, maybe the whole thing took a calendar year. So I have a slightly more technical question. I, I feel like the basic idea of the incompleteness theorem, of the second incompleteness theorem, is you sort of say, 
look at the first incompleteness theorem and now observe <laughs> that our formalization of that theorem could have already been carried out inside, you know, X. And my question is, could you imagine there to be a way to sort of carry out this informal observation formally sort of say, okay, I have some way of reflecting these proofs that I've already painstakingly done in Isabel, you know, or some other system. And now I want to sort of introspect, just take these proofs. Yeah. I don't think you can. Now, this is the funny thing is that I mentioned De Bruyne at the very beginning and De Bruyne wrote about exactly this phenomenon, um, in, I think, maybe his very first paper on Automath, the fact that a human being can suddenly leap out of the object language um, and make a, some kind of meta observation of that sort and then jump back in and continue their proof, which we cannot prove. So what is done instead, if you look at these more rigorous proofs of the incompleteness theorem, they don't follow the line that you just took, although they... In a sense, they do a more concrete version of the same thing. So um, to do to reach the second incompleteness theorem in this particular approach chosen by Sverkovsky, um, <clears throat> it is necessary. Remember the incompleteness theorem, this particular version at least, posits uh, a particular formal calculus and proves that that calculus is incomplete. And in the course of doing this, you end up spending, uh, devoting thousands and thousands of lines to proofs within this calculus itself. So many of the um, Gödel numbering constructions have to be shown correct in this calculus itself. So this is, if you like, the equivalent of saying that the argument could be done in the calculus. You literally are doing parts of the algorithm in the calculus. Okay. And, and is, okay. So, so taking this concrete way that you've done things, do you think they're, they're say you had, you know, six more months to spend to make the next person trying to do this you know, their life easier. Is there a way to sort of make this sort of systematized? If it were necessary to continue working in this calculus over in the indefinite future, one could imagine automating it. And the funny thing is, although this is, of course, after obviously Isabel itself, or Isabel Hall, for example, is an implemented calculus, but it's a highly streamlined one, whereas here we're looking at an internalized calculus. Um, Isabel's own automation already helps a lot with this internalized calculus, but if you really had to do a lot of this, one could imagine introducing specialized automation specifically for this calculus. So since you have done such a big proof and big use of, of Isabel, in your point of view, what are the biggest pain points of the theorem prover? I don't particularly notice anything that is bad um, we are working on search, and that is a thing I, I would say is work in progress. So at the moment, you can search reasonably well of all the stuff loaded in memory, but you are searching for it in a kind of low-level way. You have to know something of its syntax, 
So something of maybe a bit of what it's called, like part of the name or the constants appearing in it, or maybe a sub-expression appearing in it. And that is somewhat powerful, but sometimes you want to know, like, do we have in the library anything about a Lebesgue measure? And <clears throat> what um, one of my postdocs, so uh, Janos, is um, working on his uh, Serapis search engine, in which, in theory, you could type in something like Lebesgue measure or uniformly continuous function, or he has a vast vocabulary of mathematical terms, and uh, it will try to find things anywhere in the Isabel libraries that match up with these. Now, it's very difficult to do because many of the theorems about, say, Lebesgue integration do not have any hint in their name. And uh, he's... <coughs> He's tried a lot of approaches, and I know some people are using Serapis. Certainly, if you're doing an Isabel proof and you are trying to find a theorem, it's a thing you could consider. At the moment, it's a website that you call. Um, so that is the kind of development that could be worked on, and there is an awful lot of work on um, machine learning things. There's also some of the libraries could be a bit better. So we have, for example, a copy of the Hall Light Analysis Library, which is perhaps not really general enough in the way it's been done. So it's it's uh, the, the the use of types is very rigid and means it's not usable for a lot of problems where um, you could do. I think the Lean Math Libs would have more general versions of some of these theorems. Yeah, are there applications you would find exciting of the of these uh, libraries? Well, no, this, this is a funny thing. Mike Gordon kind of told me in the mid-90s, he said, well, it's obvious that every all, everything in mathematics is, can be put into a theorem prover, um, which is funny he said that because it's not, it wasn't at all obvious then. It's it kind of <clears throat> more plausible now, but it certainly wasn't obvious then. So he said, well, you're wasting your time doing that unless you've got some kind of good application for it. And that was kind of a shame because I think there I had students who wanted to do formalization projects, and I should have just let them instead of saying, well, you probably need an application of this because most things don't have applications. What I would say, though, to someone like Mike, <clears throat> um, who took that point of view, was, okay, I mean, that's fine. But if you are verifying things, you need an awful lot of mathematics just to verify real world entities because they interact with the physical world, which has got turbulence and things like that. That's that's true. I, I think I sometimes when I say application, I, like when mathematicians say, you know, you can apply this theorem has many applications. They don't mean, you know. This is how you get a car to self-drive. They mean, oh, this, you know, this theorem in topology is applied in number theory, and it's applied to, you know, some other proof of some other theorem. So, so it's more like this. This theory has a lot of webs. Well, you know? I'm not enough of a mathematician to be aware of this sort of thing. So, some of my colleagues would would know. Uh, like I ported the Hall Light homology library because I was told it would be terrifically useful. So I managed to port it. It was a lot of work. I still have no idea what a homology is. Um, as far as I know, no one has applied it to anything. So it was kind of a waste of time. But, you know, you never can tell ahead of time.
Well, I think we're headed to the to the end of this episode, but you've been in this field for quite a while, and I'm sure you've seen a lot of applications that we've been talking and about a lot of uses of not only Isabel but interactive theme provers in general. How do you see and how do you hope our field develops from here, goes from here? Well, I'm impressed. I have to say, I have to give Kevin Buzzard credit for bringing in loads of mathematicians. It's a shame they're all using lean, but never mind. Um, <laughs> they're doing some amazing stuff. Just as the cock people, I don't want to seem I'm down on cock. I mean, people like Asi and Mabubi have done tremendous things, really tremendous things. Uh, and it's great to see um, the field progressing um, kind of in every direction. What Buzzer did in particular, quite apart from bringing it to the attention of mathematicians, um, was also to try and apply it to really hard, right up to date mathematical problems. And he kind of said, you know, you guys, you've been doing all kind of 19th century stuff. You need to do better. And we have tried a lot harder to come into the 20th, even the late 20th century. Uh, a lot of the things that we formalize in our own project have been like late 20th century. And of course, his liquid tensor experiment, this thing where they formalize some really difficult stuff that's like two, three years old. I mean, that's, that's incredible. Um, so it's great to see the field moving forward so powerfully. Any dreams or hopes about what you would like to see moving forward? Well, the shortish or medium-term dream is to see some machine learning um, very specifically for very often you have the same patterns appearing in proofs. So very often you, you're working on a thing. So the example I always give, so maybe you've got an open set um, and you've got a point in the open set and the system might say, well, maybe you want a neighborhood around that point. Or, you know, you might be working with another set and it's closed and bounded and you say, well, actually that's a compact set and you could very easily you know, make a cover of this. And <clears throat> so these techniques that we keep seeing uh, and often it, you could imagine a machine learning based tool looking in the millions of lines and, and saying, well, something very, very similar situation appeared in this thing and the following thing worked and making useful suggestions to the user. And I do think this is something we might see within the next, I don't know, 10, 20 years. Yeah, that sounds really reasonable. I love that. Any, any final thoughts, Cody? Oh, me? I, yeah. I just excited to be here. I, I, I love talking about history. I love talking about Inkfellini's theorem. I love talking about proofs. Uh, this was very fun. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I have my own thoughts about what's important and what's, you know, what's exciting. I, I, I do think, you know, well, I, I think in many ways, you know, this sort of like what, is the killer feature of an interactive theorem prover. And I think whatever, dependent types, constructive, non-constructive, whatever. I'd like the libraries, you know, how good are your tactics? How powerful is your ability to like 
you know, coerce things to other things. I, I think that's the, the magic, right? It's all there. And you see a similar thing in programming languages, right? Where you take a language and it's not that great. And it's missing a lot of PL features that make PL people excited. Um, but the libraries are just so huge and they're so useful that it doesn't matter all that mess. It, like what matters is that, yeah, you, you need some fact, you need some theorem. It's there, right? In program language, you need some library. You need to be able to parse, you know, some HTTP header. It's, it's a single function, right? And, uh, Isabel's, you know, famously Isabel Hole is quite remarkable in that respect, especially for, you know, the kind of math that I'm excited about, which is like, you know, programming adjacent things, combinatorics and, you know, things that are a little bit more of a finite nature. And, um, and, you know, this, these sledgehammer proofs, you know, really do set the bar uh, in terms of like what should be, what should the norm for, you know, what, what an automatic proof should be. Yeah. And so I, yeah, I, I thought all that was exciting. I also like this like notion of, you know, the LCF principle. I actually wish we had talked a little bit about uh, the logic, you know, of LCF because that like, like Lawrence said, is a little bit lost to time, I think. And I, you know, I, I've never really grokked it myself. Um, you know, partiality is this like big problem in, in, in proving. Yeah. It's all about partial functions and it's about doing these kind of fixed point logic proofs that people liked doing in the seventies, but the number of examples is actually quite small. And then you've kind of, that's it. One thing that I noticed as well, since, since we're at it, let's, let's talk about it a little more, but. I've also noticed when I was looking at the papers of Isabel related to LCF, the you also mentioned boiler more, yeah, which we didn't bring it up. What is that? Wow, yes, I guess <laughs> people. It's like who were the Beatles exactly? <laughs> I am so sorry. <laughs> I'm ashamed of myself. Actually, wow. Boyer, Boyer, and more theorem prover still exists, and these guys are still alive. Um. Way back, I guess it came out in 75 or so. Um, it's quite an unusual logic. The syntax is embedded in pure Lisp. I think at the time, the prover was written in a, a fuller version of Lisp. Um, and it could do inductions automatically, and it could write even write out English language descriptions of what it was doing. Um, and it could prove a lot of things. And in fact, the first proof of the incompleteness theorem was done using the Boyer-Moore theorem prover by someone named Shankar, who then became part of the PVS team. Um, what they eventually did with this Boyer-Moore prover was they re-implemented it as a thing they call ACL2. This is very clever. So it is a computational logic, which is what they called their logic. It's now a much richer, but purely functional subset of Lisp, and it's written in its own language. So if you like, they did the lean thing way before the lean guys did. So they have implemented ACL2 in ACL2. Um, it's still quite powerful. It's a very quirky system. 
the logic is like first order logic with I think they have some kind of weak quantifiers. Um, and the logic is actually very con it constructive. It's actually so constructive that the law of the excluded middle is, is valid there. And the reason is because everything you can write is executable and terminates. And that being the case, everything you can write is decidable. <clears throat> Therefore, they can actually use the law of the excluded middle. They've used it. It's still used, I think, in hardware verification. And one of the things is that the performance is, is so high that you can run a simulation so you can prove things about a design. And at the same time, you can actually run the design and simulate it. And then you have like two different views of the same design. I remember talking with someone from ARM that they used ACL2. That is pretty cool. They yeah. probably use a lot of tools there. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, yeah. Hardware verification definitely one of the big um, drivers behind at least tools. the last 10 years mm -hmm. of like all sorts of like, you know, transition stories for these very theoretical things. And wow. as a side note, uh, because it's a small world, this is perhaps unsurprising, but I, I think Shankar went on, went on and then was hugely influential in a lot of things like Z3, like Y3, like Daphne, right? Um, That's interesting. The... I knew him since when he came maybe in 84 to join us as an intern. And he was already obviously brilliant. But I don't, you know, it's funny, having wanted to verify code, I never actually did. And now I'm 67, so it's clear that I never will. But uh, I, so I didn't follow Shankar's work in those areas. He, he did not create those systems, but he, I think um, those systems were both created by students of Shankar. So, um, Certainly, there was a, like the air of the time was was that you know reasoning about programs should be like taken seriously. Well, I think that pretty much wraps up very well our our conversation. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you think would be worth mentioning, Lawrence? I think we've covered things pretty well. Any questions that I didn't do, but I should have? No, I think I think we've covered things quite nicely. Well, that's perfect then. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for taking some time to talk with us. As I mentioned, we are, I think my my generation is like, we are so young. We, we definitely lost a lot of the, you know, insight and intuition of, of another time almost. I didn't, I, I've never heard Boiler Moore logic before, for example, and just, just bringing this things to my attention. I, I didn't know much about LCF either. So just by talking to you and looking at these things, I learned so much about, you know, the historical perspective and what were the ideas trying to be born back then and why people were doing that and why did it kind of move forward the way it did, right? And I think it's it's very important to talk about these things and to bring bring our attention to those so that we don't constantly try to reinvent the wheel, right? Yes, you do see the same ideas do come back again and yeah. again. So people need to be aware of the past. I am very excited to take a look at those blog posts you said that you've been working on. I've uh, That's definitely one of the reasons we talked to begin with, is that you've started getting very active on your Twitter and on your blog posts, which are 
are just so enlightening to to read. I really appreciate that. So thank you so much. Thank you for okay. for your time. Thank you for writing. Thank you for everything, Lawrence. You're welcome, and thank you. I really hope you guys enjoyed the show as much as I did recording it. It's always so nice to talk with cool people like Larry. It's, I don't know, I, I really enjoy understanding, have a better historical context of why we do things as we do. You know, like, science doesn't exist out of thin air. It, there is a context, there is something that has... There is something that is happening when things are being discovered and there is something that has happened before that led to it. What are the problems that we're trying to solve? What are the problems that we're approaching, right? And I love that. So talking with, with people like Larry that are able to give a, a much more broader perspective of those ideas is just, just phenomenal. It's just amazing. I hope I get the chance to talk with many more people like that. If you like this episode, I mean, if you're still here, you seem like you're liking. So go to the website. If you could donate us something, that would be really, really, really cool. Leave us a message, send us questions. And by the way, I've been thinking about opening a Discord for the for this. What do you guys think? Would you be interested in being part of a Discord? I don't know. There are just so many type theory things and category theory stuff that I, I don't know if... Would you guys be interested? Go to the website, leave a comment. I'm interested in Discord, something like that. And maybe I'll make it happen. So that's it. Keep living your best life. See you guys next time.